Okay. Apparently, apparently it is recording. Great. I really hope so. Um, do we have a name for our podcast? I haven't thought of any in the past couple hours. Tech pod. <laughs> pod. Like, shit with familiar and tomato. I don't know. Good. I would probably go by secret. A secret, sure. That's okay. Secret, secret, familiar, familiar. Familiar. Where did that name come? Okay, how did this is maybe not appropriate for this podcast. Anyway. That's okay. We can cut it out. We can edit it out of post. Um how did you come up with that name for Tumblr? It's the minor character Camilla Collins. It's like oh. my AO3 name. And, you know, I don't know if people still do this, but like it was at a time when everybody's Tumblr handle was like a side blog with mm. like, some obscure character's name as like their handle, like Fat mm. Photo or like, you know, like Nursey Dexy 420 or like, you know, something like that. That's so, right. Like, okay. You know, or like, you know, I don't know, like Diddy, but like with 14 Ys. <laughs> so uh, I was like, okay, cool. Well, I'm already familiar. I guess I'll be familiar. That's very funny. And um, yeah, you know, it really just, it, it took off. It swept the fandom. And, <laughs> you know, people think of familiar as like just one of those DNFs, you know, like, like, uh, it's a BNF in this fandom. I don't even fucking know, dude. I don't know. Actually, I have another friend who was in the fandom but isn't anymore. Um, who would regularly talk about BNFs, and I'd be like, I do not know who these people are. <laughs> this, is, this is really a weird experience because before that, I'd always been in fandoms that were like very big and had very obvious pan fandom BNFs who jumped in and sort of brought like masses of people with them anyway so I don't understand anything about this fandom is an important piece of information I guess you know what let's start there we don't know <laughs> about this fandom which is why we have to go back and talk about every single strip and while mm-hmm. it seems like I have done a lot of work to get ready to record this podcast that we decided we would do three and a half hours ago I somehow didn't look up how many actual installments of Chef Please there are. Oh, um, I did some, on a recent meta post, I did some kind of like shitty math. Give me a second. It's It's something like 140 or something like that. There's a list on the blog, but it's like, doesn't go through the last trip and it also doesn't count the ransom and holster comics like as well anyway however many let's just say for the record we can correct it next episode 140 something it's definitely not that many i'm sorry that i'm interrupting you i'll stop interrupting you but i can't add okay i'm done 
That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So however many check pieces there are, let's say a hundred, I don't know, maybe we'll look at some bonus material. Who knows? Um, we are going to be basically going through strip by strip the story of check please and uh, talking about it because the comic is ending now and you know somebody somebody's got to break this thing down so that we know what we all went through um yeah so for our for our listeners at home i think a good place to start is by introducing what is check please uh how would how would you summarize check please if, if you were talking to somebody and they were like what the hell is that what what would your answer be my answer I would say, well, what I did, I have actually told people this multiple times because at one point I was trying to get other people to read this stupid comic, which was like a lifetime ago. Anyway, there's a, there's a, there's a charming young man from Georgia who gave up figure skating for hockey. He also bakes magical realism pies and falls in love. That's what I would, that's how I would summarize this. I have to tell you, I feel like that is a much better summary than is actually on the blog, on the about page, which I copied and pasted here. Mm -hmm. It says, Eric Biddle, former Georgia junior figure skating champion, blogger extraordinaire, and amateur patissier, is starting his freshman year playing hockey at the prestigious Samwell University in Samwell, Massachusetts. And it's basically nothing like co-ed club hockey back in the South. For one, there's checking. It's a story about hockey and friendship and bros and trying to find yourself during the best four years of your life. So already like thinking about what is this comic, off the bat, I'm like, the fact that, that the mission statement of this comic is that college is the best four years of your life probably says a lot about like what we're about to read through. It's kind yeah. of I do think it's important. I mean, we should, I don't know, you have a, an amazing outline that you have created that I don't want to jump ahead too far in, but I think there is something important about like the fact that Gozi was in college when she started writing it. Um, and there's something about that framework, which I am curious about. I don't have, okay, that many thoughts about it maybe, but I think it's important to think about. Yeah, so you mentioned Ngozi. Who's Ngozi? Let's uh, let's get that out into the into the world. Ngozi Ukazu, which I believe is how to best pronounce her name, um, is the author of this comic piece of art, double published books, etc. Um, she went to Yale for undergrad, and in Yale, at Yale, she wrote a screenplay called Party which was about a young man um, in the college hockey scene trying to come to terms with his sexuality. It was sad and had drug abuse in it. I don't remember that much else because she only ever let us read like two pages of it, but I thought it was pretty good at the time. It was a different era, but I still enjoyed it. Anyway, she went have, to Yale, after she went to Yale, she, um, sorry? I said, maybe when we have a Patreon, our first like bonus release, we'll be reading that script. Oh my God, ah, <laughs> what a dream. Okay, that sounds great. Um, Ngozi then left Yale, went to uh, SCAD. Yeah. Um, 
to get her master's in sequential art, which is a really known sequential art program. There are lots of other people who've gone there. Um, like actually, I think Lucy Nisley went there. Anyway, it doesn't matter. She got her master's in sequential art and subsequently Check Please became her livelihood. And that trajectory is evident in the text of the comic, I think, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I think that's what we're, what we're here, here doing this podcast to find out. Yeah, um, you're, you're right. She was at Yale. She was a senior at Yale in the year 2012-2013. So in the spring of 2013, she was finishing up her uh, bachelor's degree. And she, for a final in some class, wrote a screenplay uh, called Hardy, as you noted. And her senior thesis. Yeah, in, in June um, 2013, he started posting uh, installments of a comic, which he thought I think initially was just going to be some like one-off jokes, but it eventually bloomed into a story that follows the main characters four years in college. And this week, the first week of April, um, 2020, is the week that the, the last installments of the comic are actually posting. So it's been a roughly seven year journey to tell the story of eight semesters in some kids' time in college. And yeah, I, I think probably it's been covered, but just to make clear, he is playing uh, division one hockey in the NCAA in a, a division called um, ECAC, which is a real life uh, division one hockey, I don't know, division. Group. I don't know enough about I don't know enough about collegiate hockey to know what the right word is, but it's the it's the sort of group that includes like I think Nipiac, Brown, and other Ivy League schools uh, around mostly the Northeast. It's not known for producing extremely high quality hockey players. If you were going to become a very good professional hockey player in the United States or Canada, you would probably not be going to this school and playing hockey for this team. But maybe that's uh, getting getting too far into it. Um, the next, I guess, just to just to give a little more background on Ngozi, um, he's from Houston, Texas, and um, he is. She went on, like you said, to get her degree in sequential arts from Dad. That's in Savannah, Georgia. So she's writing about a character from Georgia. She'd been writing about him while she was living in Georgia. And um, that was from 2013 to 2015. She graduated in 2015. And yes, she's been primarily supporting herself through uh, publication deals and before that, uh, Patreon and before that, Kickstarters through which she's basically been publishing this comic. She's been working on, I think, some sort of post-Check Please project, but um, I'm not really interested in that, and none of them have been released yet, so I don't know that I have anything to say about them. Um, yeah, I, so I think just to give a little background here, I, I would characterize the Check Please fandom as maybe like small to mid-size. Mm, I agree. I mean, I don't know. The the thing is, um, the other fandom I'm really familiar with is the South Park fandom, um, which has about 9,100 uh, fan works on AO3. Check Please has about 700 more than that. It's 
uh, like 9,800 something as of right now. And it's obviously had something like a quarter of the time to develop a, a fan base. So, you know, it, it's doing pretty well, but there are many fandoms on AO3 that have like hundreds of thousands of fan works. However, you know, in contrast to that, he's had a lot of sort of mainstream critical success on the backs of her fandom. So I think like the stat that comes most easily to mind for me is that um, one of her Kickstarters, uh, the one she ran in fall 2015, made about $400,000 to publish the second volume of, of Check, Please. And at the time, that was the most funded webcomics Starter ever. I think that's now been well surpassed. And then eventually she um, got a publishing deal with First Second, which is an imprint of the, the mainstream publisher Macmillan, to basically reprint the comic in two versions, one of which came out uh, literally yesterday at the time of this recording. So it's something that has like a weird kind of like marginal success where Everybody sort of knows where it is, but it never feels like it's a mega fandom. And I do also think there's something about the the critical success, which is important. First Second is um, not only an imprint of a, it's not only an imprint of a larger publishing house, it's also well known for producing quality works, like as far as comics publishing goes. Um, but what's really interesting to me is that they allowed her to continue running Kickstarters even after she signed the deal with them. So she released three and four through her own Kickstarters, like years three and four, or will be releasing for it, I believe. Um, while at the same time, uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we should edit that out. But definitely she released year three um, through Kickstarter while releasing three and four then together in a double band volume, which came out. No, you're right. Um, as of as of now, at least, she is on the record saying that later this year, later in 2020, there will be a fourth check please Kickstarter, or rather, what I should say is a fifth check please Kickstarter, because she's already run a fourth to publish a shirt book that has right. like you know supplemental material in it. But the fourth year, so to speak, of the comic, she is planning on starting to complete the set, so to speak. Right, so which is a really interesting and unusual model. Um, I've ne I don't think I've ever seen another author be able to publish with a publisher like that while also independently publishing. Um, so that's quite interesting. And I don't know if it's impacted the fandom, but it certainly impacted the way people talk about the comic because there's a core of really, really passionate fans who've been following for like, many years or just are deep in it for whatever reason. And then there's like a much broader scope of people. Like I have a friend who works um, at a children's bookstore in New York city. That's pretty well known. And, and that is a, something that they carry, which is also like, it's not really a children's comic, but anyway, fun fact. Um, uh, and so there's this like now broader, 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 broader ring of people who are engaging with this comic in a much different way than the people who are like, for example, obsessive, writing thousands of words of fan fiction anyway so where would you group yourself in in these <laughs> of fans how do you come into check please who who are who am i speaking to right now hello i'm tomato um i go by tomato greens in more formal situations but you you know tomato's fine 
Uh, I got into Czech please, I think in 2014, um, 2013, 2014, right around there, because I had a lot of friends in hockey RPF. I myself was not really in hockey RPF, but I was adjacent. I read some, I didn't know who any of these people were, but I liked hockey. Um, so I checked it out, but I, it, what, RPF is not usually my, my fandom of choice. So when this comic came along, I thought it was cute and fun and my friends were into it. And, uh, at the time Ngozi was very participatory with her fans. That wasn't yet something she made money off of really. So it was a completely different environment. Um, but I stayed a really casual fan for the first two years of the comic. I did not really read fanfic. I was just like, this, what a nice, cute blonde boy making those pies. Great. Um, and then after Jack and Biddy got together, uh, I was like, oh, I knew she'd been telling us the whole time that this would happen. But I didn't really believe it because I've been burned so many times by like mainstream media. So great, they're in love, that's great. And then I reread the comic and started noticing kind of more interesting patterns. I checked out the fandom, but it wasn't really that exciting for me. I'd read a few things that were Jack Biddy. They didn't necessarily tickle my fancy. And then I read um, some Jack Biddy Parse fic, and I was like, well, that's got something going on there, but like, it's not necessarily my taste. And then I read a fic that Secret wrote, and I thought it was amazing. <laughs> and I <laughs> contacted Secret via Tumblr Messenger and was like, hello, I really like your writing. And then uh, I got egged on into writing obsessive, <laughs> obsessive thousands of words of fanfic about Jack and Biddy and how they are dysfunctionally going to be together forever. Um, but I should say that like the more that um, the comic sort of went off the rails, which we can talk about when we get there, uh, the more that I became sickly obsessed to this relationship. So that's where I am. And that's my terrible check please story, I guess. How about you? Well, um, just, just briefly, would you tell, would you tell any listeners at home who don't know what is RPF? Oh, sure. RPF stands for real people thick, and it's what happens when people want to write about uh, real people in the real world making out, but those real people do not appear to be making out for real, so they write stories about it. Okay, cool. Um, thank you. Uh, you know, I mean, to a certain extent, my, my reply to, to your intro would basically be like, same. Um, I didn't get into it until 2016. My primary fandom had always been South Park, and um, I'm, I'm still also in the South Park fandom. However, um, my first exposure to Sheckley's fandom was that some people who used to write South Park fic, whose AO3 accounts I had subscribed, started uh, writing Sheckley's. So I started getting emails that were like, so-and-so has posted a Sheckley's fanfic. And while I didn't like go look into what it was, that kind of let me become aware that it was a thing. So when Jack and Biddy get together, which will happen probably 60 episodes from now, <laughs> I was sort of conscious that this was a thing that people were interested in. And I started seeing pictures of them, you know, kissing on Tumblr. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to read this. And I read it and I just instantly was hooked. I was instantly obsessed with it. I thought it was amazing. 
this is a time when only about half the story has been told. So I think I was thriving on a lot of the energy and the fans at the time, and also a lot of the potential that the comic had. And, you know, one of the reasons why I'm interested in doing this podcast and talking through this comic kind of strip by strip, like revisiting it and, and thinking about the narrative is to basically sort of cycle into effectively the question of how did like my over-the-top enthusiasm for this comic alongside crazy like you know fanfics and discussing like functional weirdness with you basically like you know curdle into my general feeling right now is the comic is ending which is basically like what a waste like where did it go wrong and I wonder you know I wonder how much of that is being in a fandom where you're surrounded by discourse and people having takes. How much of it is, you know, feeling sort of tribal allegiances to parts of the story that maybe didn't get followed through on? And how much of it is just sort of there in the narrative? Like, what if any of the promise of this story didn't like bear out in the way that I thought it did when I was just like suffused with fucking enthusiasm for it in the spring of, of 2016. So, you know, I think that's a good lead into basically what is the goal of the project of this podcast, which is basically we're gonna we're gonna go through the comics strip by strip and we're gonna talk both sort of about like the individual installments, like do they work on their own merits? Or don't they? And why? And what's good about them? And what's flawed about them? And what's funny? And like, how do they make us feel? But also the larger narrative of the comic, you know, what's the larger story here? How do these individual strips, you know, feed into or not feed into what the eventual conclusion of the comic is? Yeah, and I think... (laughs) We like spoil the end of the comic. Like, is is anybody following this because they they don't know what happens in check, please? Probably no one's following it. <laughs> I think that we will obviously have legions of loyal listeners who also want to exhaustively document their emotional relationship to every artistic detail of this comic. Of course. Um, but uh, but I think it's also I think we can spoil it pretty safely. I think that, in fact, we have to because I because for me, there's this thing that's happened that's developed where I have two ways of thinking about the comic. There's a way of thinking about it, which is about Ngozi as an author and sort of like pacing and writing. I am a writer right now, sort of like in my job. Um, so I have been thinking a lot about that. Uh, that won't last forever, but anyway, I still think a lot about sort of how stories work and how storytelling works. But then there's also what the comic is and does in its own universe um, and sort of how the story makes a kind of sense in that universe, even if when we talk about sort of the way that the writing changed throughout, uh, it might not make sense. There are ways to make sense of that narrative. And so I think you have to take the end into account when you start thinking about the beginning, because um, for me, I have to do that in order to track 
where that beginning fits into the overarching narrative. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And because you gave some context for sort of like what you do in, in your daily life, um, I, I will say that um, my, I'm an art historian by training. So when I look at this comic, I tend to look at it as a visual work. I tend to think of it in terms of visual analysis. And I feel like, you know, as it's somebody who got a MFA in sequential art from SCAD, Ngozi is a really, really gifted visual storyteller. And even in strips where maybe the narrative isn't working, there's a lot of highly effective art direction. And visually and let's say plot-wise, the comic isn't always working together for me in a way that's satisfying. It almost seems like this is somebody who's a better, a better cartoonist than they are a writer, maybe. I also think she has particular gifts in writing. I think she's really great at, at group dynamics. Um, when those group dynamics do not have like long lasting consequences. So there are certain scenes where not only, where she not only gives visual language that's really thoughtful, but also written, like the writing itself is pretty thoughtful in characterization and the pacing. I think her weakness is probably in building building narrative long-term and in pacing. But yeah, her visual language is really effective. I'm not a trained art historian and I don't know much about visual art, but I do know that when I see certain things that she does, I find them really, really effective. Often though, that effectiveness is sort of, or efficacy or whatever is sort of like limited to that panel. And when you string all the panels together, that efficacy is not, is not always long lasting. So I want to think a lot about that and how that shifts over the comic because I didn't find that to be the case in the beginning. Yeah, and I mean, something that's also sort of worth doing in terms of our overall goal, in terms of going strip by strip is that, you know what, like when you have a comic that's being told in installments, sometimes a strip works because it has a beginning, a middle and an end that all fit together. And from the first panel to the last panel, it's a holistic entity that like makes sense in and of itself. But then when you zoom out and you ask what the function of this particular strip is in a larger narrative that's supposedly being told, maybe it's not as effective or maybe it's just actually kind of bad or not yeah. pulling its weight. And I don't know, I mean, if this were just kind of a serial open-ended thing, I mean, I followed webcomics before where it's just like, you know, the goal of the cartoonist is to just make this webcomic, you know, once a week or three times a week or once a month for as long as they can possibly sustain their interest and they're not really telling any kind of particular story. They just want to produce, you know, a strip that's like entertaining for that day to like keep the readership going. This is a story that from the start is framed around this character's particular journey within four specific years at college. And it has an overarching, I think, like 
plot of a sort, which I think we can kind of start talking about, like once we get a few strips into year one. However, yeah, I don't know. I just, I feel like this, this is something that, you know, has supposedly as a story, Chuck Please has like a beginning, a middle, and an end where it starts in one place and you're trying to get the protagonist to the end of the story in a way that's transformative. So I think it's fair to kind of ask, what are these individual strips doing? Like, are they, are they, serving, are they serving that journey? Are they serving that plot? What is the function of these like disparate, disparate elements? Do they tie together in a way that's cohesive? Or don't they? Yeah, I agree. That's why when you said, do you want to make a podcast? I said, yes. And then you started <laughs> recording this podcast and you thought, oh crap. <laughs> this is a, we're, we're not to go on for too long. Um, I think this particular episode is going to be a little heavier on intro than, than other ones where we, I think, start to get kind of into um, the the strips themselves. We'll get to the we'll get to the strip at the at the end of the at the end of the podcast. We'll give it like ninety seconds or whatever. But um, yeah, just just for some context. Um, so this is this is uh, this particular strip. Um, Eric Biddle, comic one of year one, is uh, being published. This is kind of being developed and published in at the beginning of the second term of Barack Obama. So if you think sort of where where we're coming from it's it's a time where some dramatic things are happening there's no you know it's, it's there's no absence of movie events but uh certainly it's we can maybe think about how the you know how the tone and how the goals of the comic kind of um sharpen or shift as as time progresses because uh, some wild things have happened while this story's been told um the, the sort of one historical event that I would maybe kind of highlight uh, just in terms of check please specific is that uh, this particular strip is published uh, in the lead up to the uh, second Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup win in four seasons. And um, this particular strip 1.1 comes out between games four and five of the Western Conference final in which the Blackhawks uh, basically slaughter the Kings uh, 4-1 in the series and, and go on to win the Stanley Cup. And concurrently, the uh, hockey RPS fandom that you previously mentioned is, is really, I think, like exploding at this time. I looked up some, some stats on, on fan lore, and it's something like in 2013, there were like three times as many um, hockey RPF picks published than there had been the previous year. And the Chicago Blackhawks specifically are, are kind of like a, a big fandom that, that's kind of expanding, expanding that bubble. So it's interesting that this strip to me uh, is, is sort of, or this comic in general rather, is, is coming into the world like at a time when, I, I don't know, it's sort of hockey within the context of fandom is expanding quite a bit. And I, I think, you know, if you follow some of the paratextual materials, you'll see that um, I do think Ngozi has some, some hockey sympathies. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but to fully be a conspiracy theorist, 
Well, I won't be full conspiracy theorist. To be like a partial, cautious conspiracy theorist, um, there are definitely links that Ngozi draws in paratextual material in the extras between different characters and specifically Blackhawks characters. Black, the Blackhawks were sort of the darlings of the day in that era of Hockey RPF, which I know because, again, I was checking out Hockey RPF and I didn't know. I'm from the East Coast. I like did not care about any sports in the Midwest at all. Um, and I knew who the Blackhawks were because of this. So there was this, uh, there are two people who sort of were like um, in charge of rebranding the franchise, like around this period, who people were writing about. Um, and Ngozi actually draws specific parallels between various characters and those people. We don't have to go too into it right now, but um, but that is something that I'm really interested in. And to finish my conspiracy theory, there are some names in common between the people who were writing Hockey RPF and who Ngozi was talking to in those early days in and, and, and her friendship. So I'm not trying to suggest anything particular about that series of information, but I do think it's really important to the context of who was talking about this comic, who was enjoying this comic, and how people were writing about these characters, because there's definitely a link. Okay, I actually think that's not a bad teaser for tune in to the future episodes of this podcast, <laughs> maybe more on Tomato's conspiracy theories of which shadowy figures are lurking in the margins of maybe Shakti's formative history. But uh, we've, we've got three minutes to basically uh, summarize the first strip of Shakti's. Um, in the comments, let us know if you think I should do a Southern accent when I'm reading Diddy's dialogue. But basically, just to really quickly summarize, um, this is the first strip. Biddy's sitting in his dorm room. He's uh, introducing himself. It's framed through the context of his blog. Um, maybe I'll go back and like re-record this layer and like drop it into the drop it into the thing. But uh, pretty much, he shows up. He says, "You know, I'm on the team. I'm in preseason. I'm about to go meet the boys, meaning the boys on the team." I baked a pecan pie. And then there's a little uh, black panel that's 29 hours later, and Biddy says, uh, I met the boys. They have horrible hygiene, and the things they did to the pecan pie were felonious. And that's it. That's, that's the first strip of check, please. So uh, the questions I wrote down here, which I think are the questions to maybe ask about like every strip of this comic, is. Uh, does this strip work on a standalone basis? How? Why? I would say it does. It gets me intrigued. I'm curious about this man with huge eyes. I don't understand exactly what's happening or who the boys are, but I think they might have fucked a pie. I feel like really worried about that. Yeah. Um, so I would say yes. They fucked the pie, didn't they? I don't know how else to interpret Polonia's pie engagement never clarified it's it's never it's never clarified what what actually happened to the pie i mean i think they just they just they what they ate it i don't know I'm sure they ate it and like didn't wipe their mouths but yeah. i prefer to think baby fucking was involved um yeah i don't know maybe uh, just to be controversial pretty here is drawn <laughs> stereotypically gay his 
gestures and the articulation of his limbs and digits is highly theatrical, even flamboyant. I think it's super stereotypical. I think he's quoting him as very gay, like highly effeminate. This is also how I read his body language. His body language actually shifts throughout the comic. This is another thing she's thoughtful about. Um, and so does sort of the way that he presents himself. Um, but I don't know how else to interpret what I'm looking at. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, honestly, if you, if you like, just as I'm clicking through right now, panel to panel to panel, it honestly does not seem like the same character gesticulating like between panels. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, does it work in the larger narrative? I think we're like basically out of time. So does it, yes, no? Sure. Yeah. The There's no narrative yet, so why not? I don't think she could have been any better is the thing. I think yeah. basically this is the first one and she wasn't really sure where she was going when she started here. So uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know, you have to introduce your character some way, knowing what I know now what would have been a better way to do it? I'm, I'm not really sure. I also think that Biddy's character does sort of, uh, I don't know the word, like crystallize or become sort of more brittle in, in later periods. And so there's something that really works for me about this. He's excited to meet the boys, capital T, capital B, wants to feed them pie. Like that feels good to me. It's 18 year old Eric Biddle. Yeah, that's what Eric Biddle wants. I feel it. All right. Next. Next time, next uh, next installment of insert name of podcast here, we will also meet the boys in strip 1.2, the boys. And uh, just, to, just to wet your whistle a little to uh, give you a give you a teaser, we will meet in the next strip, I believe, the most important character in check please until we meet the other most important character in Shepley's. What a dream. I'm very excited. Oh my God, it's gonna be a fucking ride. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I think this is uh, honestly the only good thing I have going in my life right now. My life is a nightmare of my own making and this is like a small glimmer of light in the corner of darkness. So I'm very, I'm very pleased about it. All right, cool. Join us next time when we meet the boys in strip 1.2 of Checkplays. I've been Secret OMG. And I'm Tomato Greens. And uh, we're reading through Checkplays strip by strip. Uh, great in the view. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Thanks, guys. How do I end recording? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, cool. Here, stop recording. All right. Thank you.